0: Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson.
1: To, in the end, finally say, I do not believe in Jesus, I do not need Jesus, I do not want Jesus, and to persist in that mentality on to the end, that is the unpardonable sin. Why is it unpardonable? Because sin can only be forgiven through Christ. And if we reject the forgiver, then we cannot be forgiven.
0: Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Hebrews. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 26 through 39, in a message titled, No Turning Back. Now here's Pastor Brian.
1: We're going to pick up today in our study of Hebrews. We're picking up today in the 26th verse of the 10th chapter. And as we pick up in the 26th verse, we're you know we're kind of breaking into right into a thought that's being uh, expressed, and so we want to get the continuity here of of what's being said. But but the author spent ten and a half chapters basically just trying to get his readers to understand the beauty, the glory, the awesomeness of the relationship that they now had with God through Christ, because they were being tempted to drift back into their old religion, a religion that was good for the time but it was a temporary situation and it was pointing to something greater. So the author is reminding them, look, the greater thing has come. Jesus is the greater thing. He's the fulfillment of all these things. But because of suffering, persecution, challenges, hardship, and a seeming delay in the promises of God being fulfilled, these people were considering returning to the old and, you know, in... Of course, in the process, they would be turning away from Christ. So, so he's writing to them to warn them about doing that. And so, as we come to uh, verse nineteen, after he's you know kind of made his whole case, he then says to them, he says, "Therefore, brethren," he says, "having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way." He's, he says, let us now draw near. We, we've got the ultimate means by which to access God now. So, so let us draw near. We have this great high priest over the house of God. We have immediate and direct access into the presence of God. So let's take advantage of that. Let's draw near. So he exhorts them, let's draw near. He also exhorts them, let's hold fast. Hold fast to our confession. Don't let go of this. This is, this is your prized possession. This is the most wonderful thing that there ever could be. You don't want to let go of this. Hold fast to it. And then he also said, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And then he said, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And then he says this, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So we see here as we connect verse 26 with what we've previously looked at, we see that what he's saying is that there's a connection between abandoning fellowship and possibly abandoning the faith. And so that's what he's warning them about. And so as we come to verse 26, we come to another one of the many strong warnings that are in this epistle. The the epistle to the Hebrews probably has more warnings in it than any other letter in the New Testament. And the warning is essentially the same all the way through. It's warning them not to turn back, not to go backward, not to draw back, not to you know, go back to, to the old religious system, not to go back to the world, not to go back to anything that might be looking appealing to them at that point, but to hold fast and to continue to cling to Jesus. And he says that in order to do that, In order to make sure we do that, we've got to stay connected with one another. And so we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together like some do, but we're to gather and come together consistently. And in in doing that, we're to exhort one another. And so as we pick up in verse 26, let me read from verse 26 through the end of the chapter. Then we'll go go in and um, look at three different points. So he says, you know, having... Talked about not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, he says, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourself in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul." So in those verses, there are three things that we see, three things that stand out that I want to highlight. First of all, he tells us about the certainty of God's judgment. This is probably the most unpopular thing you can talk about in the culture today, God's judgment. But even though it, it is a very unpopular thing, It's a a thing that many people would scoff at, the idea that there's going to be a judgment day. The Bible is crystal clear that judgment is certain. So we see that in the passage. Secondly, we, we see that the writer is making a very personal appeal. He's not writing to people that he doesn't know anything about or have any connection with. He's not saying these things to people that he's disassociated from and maybe he's just heard about them, so he's going to write them this challenging letter. He knows them personally, and they know him. So there's that personal appeal that he makes here. And then thirdly, we see as we come toward the end of the chapter that there is the call for faith, that he's challenging them to, to continue in the life of faith. So I want to look at the chapter or the verses that we read with those three things in mind. So first of all, he says, for if we sin willfully. Now, the question is, what what does he mean by that? Because if we're honest, we would all have to admit we've all sinned willfully after we've come to the knowledge of the truth, right? I mean, I, I know I have, There have certainly been times when, even as a Christian, I have done things knowingly that I shouldn't do. I have said things, or I can think of so many times when maybe I've said some unkind word to my wife, and I know in advance I shouldn't say this. There's the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, don't say it, don't say it, be quiet, be nice, be kind, walk away, and then out it comes, I say it. So, I, I sin willfully after I receive the knowledge of the truth. Or, you know, maybe it's not something you said, maybe it's something that you thought, or maybe it's something that you actually do. So we've all sinned willfully. So it can't be talking about sin in that, in just that broader, more general sense. That's not what he's talking about here. But let me say this. If we don't understand that, we can be tripped up and and deceived by the enemy. I know many people who have been radically ripped off by the devil thinking that they had committed the unpardonable sin because they did something willingly after they had come to know the truth. I've often said about this passage here, it's one of the devil's favorite verses because he takes these statements and for the person who doesn't understand the, the context, he uses these things to, to try to condemn them, to try to get them to despair. I've known people that have actually had nervous breakdowns because they thought that they had sinned to the point where there was no longer a sacrifice. We might also call this a reference here to the unpardonable sin because it says if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So, so these are s- sins Or this is a sin that he's talking about that there is no sacrifice for. So we could look at it as the unpardonable sin. But what is the unpardonable sin? Well, the unpardonable sin is only one sin. And that's the sin that he's talking about here. It's the same thing that he's warning against all the way through the book. It's the rejection of Christ. That's what he's warning them about. He's not warning them about sins in general. He's warning them about one specific sin. And notice, you see the comparison when you look at verse 28. He says, anyone who has rejected Moses' law, notice, rejected Moses' law, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So that's the idea. To sin willfully is to reject Christ. To, in the end, finally say, I do not believe in Jesus, I do not need Jesus, I do not want Jesus, I'm fine without Jesus. And to persist in that mentality onto the end, that is the unpardonable sin. Why is it unpardonable? Because sin can only be forgiven through Christ. And if we reject the forgiver, then we cannot be forgiven. So that's the sin that he's warning about. That's what he's wanting to protect them from. Now, lest you're tempted to think, as some have, that God's promise to judge those who reject Christ, lest lest you're tempted to think that that's, well, that's awfully harsh. You know, how, how is it that God could be so harsh over such a small thing like rejecting Jesus? We need to understand what rejecting Jesus amounts to, and he tells us in the very next verse what it is. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose he will he be thought worthy of who has, look at what rejecting Christ is. Trampling the Son of God underfoot, counting the blood of the covenant as a common thing or an unholy thing, and insulting the spirit of grace. Man, those are strong terms. So when we sometimes wrongfully think that, well, just rejecting Christ, I mean, what's the big deal about that? I, you know, I've got another religion, or you know, I've got my own way, and you know, Jesus was okay, but I, I don't really need him. How, how could God come down on me so hard for that? Well, in rejecting Christ, from God's perspective, what we're doing is we're trampling underfoot his son, We're just mowing right over Jesus. Jesus is insignificant. Jesus is irrelevant. What do I have to do with Jesus? What do I care about Jesus? I don't need Jesus. And God takes great offense to that because Jesus is God's son and Jesus is the son that God gave. God's most precious possession, if you will, is his son. And as he's given his son for us, he expects us to warmly receive him, not trample him under our feet. You know, if I were to give my son for in exchange for somebody else, and, you know, hypothetically, obviously, but, you know, if I were to do that and there was a complete disregard for what I had done, there was just a total unthankfulness. You know, hey, it was just your son. Who, you know, who cares? You know how offended I would be. You know how offended you would be by something like that. Well, that's how God looks at the whole thing. He's offended. He sees it as trampling the Son of God underfoot and then counting the blood of the covenant as a common. Or an, an unholy thing. Now, the word holy means, you know, it's set apart. It's in, a, it's in a category all by itself. So unholy and common mean the same thing. Common meaning, of course, like we think common. Oh, it's just common. There's nothing unique about it. There's nothing extraordinary about it. Well, the blood of Jesus is the most precious thing in the universe, it's the blood of the Son of God. Uh, we're told in Acts twenty twenty-eight that the church was purchased with the blood of God. Because of course the Son of God is God. He's God the Son. He has the same nature as the Father. So from God's point of view, for those who reject his son, it's as though they're they're looking at his blood, which is to God, the most precious thing. And again, just think with me for a second, put yourself in the position that, you know, you somehow ended up, you know, giving your child that you love more than anything in the world for the life of others. His blood had to be shed and they look at it and say, well, what's the blood of Jesus? That doesn't matter. There's no difference between the blood of Jesus and my blood. There's no difference between the blood of Jesus and the blood of some animal sacrifice. There's no difference. Again, this is, this is highly offensive to God. And he puts it, I think he kind of you know, sums it all up in this is really an insult to the spirit of grace. You know, when you insult somebody... You know, it's a highly offensive thing to insult somebody, intentionally, you know, to intentionally insult somebody. I mean, sometimes we can insult people without intentionally doing it. You know, we said the wrong thing and it insulted them and we come back and say, God, you know, I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. But, you know, for the person who just sets out, I'm going to insult this person. I'm going to humiliate them. I'm going to embarrass them. I'm going to make them feel bad by, you know, my actions or, or by my statement. Rejecting Christ is insulting the spirit of grace. It's an insult to God. It's like you're spitting in God's face. That's what it's like. It's it's an insult. You know, in certain cultures, there are things that are highly offensive, very insulting, kind of varies, you know, from culture to culture. Certain cultures, though, to spit in somebody's face, that is the greatest insult ever. When we reject Christ, it's like spitting in God's face. It's an insult. And, but notice he says, insulting the spirit of grace. It's spitting in the face of the God who's saying, I love you. I, I, I want to forgive you. Come to me and let me, let me cleanse you and wash you. And, and, and the response from this person is just to spit in his face. Get away from me. I don't need that. I don't want that. I don't need to have anything to do with that. Now, you can see just from a human standpoint how radically offensive that is, but that's what the human race is doing to God on a regular basis by rejecting his son, and God declares that there will be a day when there will be a judgment for those who reject his son. And so he goes on and he speaks of that judgment. Vengeance is mine says the Lord. I will repay. Again the Lord will judge his people. And then he says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Boy, I'll tell you, sometimes I think you know, how can we be so delusional as human beings? You know, how could we be so arrogant? How can how can we take the position that we take? Against God, you know. It's, I mean, sometimes you see the person, you know, maybe somebody on TV, uh, you know, who's got a reputation for being an atheist or something, and they're they're mocking God and just making a joke out of the whole thing. And I think, wow, you know, how, how could it be that we could be so deceived as to think that we could do that and get away with it? You know, there, there's, there's a time of reckoning that will come. And when you think of how easily we could be snuffed out, that, that's the thing that really astounds me. You know, you, you look at somebody and all their arrogance and all of their boastfulness and all of that against God, and you think, you know, a microscopic little thing could take you out in a minute you know, or sometimes I think of, uh, you know, natural disaster, catastrophe, you know, man seems so great in his own eyes and invincible and so, so powerful. And yet, you know, a hurricane comes or a tsunami comes or an earthquake comes or something like that comes. And, you know, you would think that after a while, we'd kind of figured out, wow, you know, we're kind of vulnerable here. You know, we're not as safe as we might think we are. We could easily be obliterated, but We don't get it. We just keep going on in the delusion. But there's coming a time when judgment will come, and it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the idea here you know, there's the beautiful picture of falling into the arms of the living God where he's going to embrace you and receive you and love you. Falling into the hands of the living God, the picture really is of being arrested. All of a sudden, there you are, man. You are under arrest and you are taken off to prison and to judgment. That's the picture that he's painting here, and that's the reality for some people that will come. It will come. You know, the atheists are fond of saying that religion is the opiate of the people, and I think Karl Marx, I don't know if it originated with him, but he's often the one who's uh, said to have said that initially. Atheism is, or uh, religion is the opiate of the people. People come under a delusion. They dream of pie in the sky. They don't deal with reality on earth. And, you know, it's just it just numbs them from having to deal with the truth and so forth. So, you know, atheism is the opiate of the people or, excuse me, religion. But the reality is atheism is the opiate of the people because atheism tries to say that you can live any way you want, you can do anything you want, you can hurt as many people as you want, you can destroy as many lives as you want, you can rip off and harm, and you can do all of that, and you never have to answer for it. That's a delusion. That is a delusion, because listen, there's a judgment day coming. And we know that on on just, you know, on the human level, we know that. We know that, you know, we, we see people sometimes who are criminals. We see people who are evil. And, you know, you just know, man, you know, someday, what do we think in the back of our minds? We think, you know, someday it's all going to catch up with that person. It, well, what, what goes around comes around. Or, you know, some people say, man, karma, you know, uh, karma is going to catch up with them sometime. Because we know, we recognize that you can't do those kinds of things without retribution, coming back your way at some point. And, and you know, it's true. My wife is addicted to crime solver shows. Addicted, seriously. And she's seen like thousands of them. She could be a, a great, like a private eye or something. If uh, she ever needs to go into another line of work, it'll be detective work, no doubt. And so she watches these crazy things on you know YouTube and whatever else all the time. And, um, and you know, I, I hate that. I, well, I, I don't want to get distracted by that. You know, I'm doing other things, but inevitably I get sucked in, you know, I'm there and she's got her little iPad set up and she's watching the thing and I'm over doing something else. And, but you know, I'm, I'm sort of listening in and I'm hearing a little bit about the story. And, and then, you know, so finally I get, I get totally sucked into the thing, but, but here's my point. What you see as you watch these crime shows is that most of the time, almost all the time, the person gets caught. They get caught, even though they might have, even though their whole thing was, was so clever and it was so well thought out, and they knew that they, would, they could pull off this crime. And most of these are murder mysteries, you know. But it's amazing to just see over and over and over again how in the end they get busted they get caught. And, you know, there's a passage back in, I think it's in Numbers, and it says this. It says, be sure that your sins will find you out. And you know what? It's true. Everybody's going to get busted someday.
0: For the month of February, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled Gentle and Lowly The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. The world, the flesh, and the devil are constantly at war against us Christians, and sometimes we feel defeated, and at others we give in to the pressures of sin and compromise. But in those times, we should not expect harshness from heaven. We can expect the gentleness of Christ to draw us in all the more, because it is God who sets the terms by which He loves us, no matter how unlovable we think we might be. So no matter what your sin or how long you've been sinning, Jesus will never cast you out. If you need to be encouraged about Jesus' unfailing love for you, or if you know someone that needs to know Jesus' love for them, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you, at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Hebrews.